Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. On Wednesday, 27th of October, Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced the UK government's latest spending review. So to discuss what that means and what it means for Wales, we are joined by Gito Ivan, researcher at Wales Fiscal Analysis Team at Cardiff University's Wales Governance Centre. Hello, Gito. Hello, that's fine. Right. and Ed Poole, Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at the Wales Governance Centre at Cardiff University. Hello, Ed. Uh, so before we get into the details, I think everyone who listens is aware of what the budget is, but obviously last week saw the spending review, which is slightly less well known. Can you tell us a little bit about what that process is and what it means, Ed? Sure. So every few years, the, uh, uh, the Chancellor and the Treasury will put together a series of plans, departmental spending plans uh, for the various departments of the UK government, uh, which also has an impact on the spending levels of the devolved governments. So the spending review ideally would be over a few periods of a few years, so that that's a way of giving a bit of security for the, the future shape of the budget. So uh, the ministers and devolved government ministers in our case can uh, have a, a relative degree of certainty over, over how much they might have to spend in the forthcoming years. Of course, it, with the coronavirus pandemic, these things have been much less able to plan. So we've seen one-year spending reviews rather than that multi-year look that, that were originally the intention um, of these. But they're very important in, in setting the overall, what we might term the envelope of public spending um, for Wales. Because although it is true, of course, that devolved taxes, particularly devolved income tax, is making a big change to the way that the Welsh government is, is funded, still the vast majority of funding comes via the block grant. So Westminster government decisions are, are very important um, for Wales as well. And the point about sort of certainty for the Welsh government is the first time that I think that the Welsh government have had, that, that the Welsh government know how much they'll have to spend after the next financial year, um, since about October 2017, I think, was the last time that they were able to set a multi-year budget. So that sort of uncertainty is pretty unprecedented, really, since we started having these spending reviews and started at Gordon Brown's um, chancellorship with New Labour, they brought in these spending reviews. But just having sort of one year spending reviews has just created a huge amount of, of uncertainty for the Welsh government, added to the sort of the billions and billions of pounds that have come on top of, of the allocated sort of core budgets for the, for the COVID-19 response has been, yeah, quite an unprecedentedly, unprecedented uh, in terms of uncertainty for the last budget. Can I, can I ask you about what you just said there, actually, Gitto? So, you know, one of the big takeaways in the media last week and from the UK government that in pure fiscal terms, it was a good day for Wales. There are billions more per year through to the 24, 25 fiscal year. Is, is that right? Is that what happened last week? Yeah, I guess it depends what you what your sort of benchmark is. I guess, yeah, that's often the case for these things. Um, so if you got, if I take you back to sort of March 21, so last March, when the Chancellor announced this sort of indicative spending plans for the next three years, it was a really bleak outlook for the Welsh Government's budget. Basically, he'd cut back about £16 billion a year compared to what he was planning to spend on, on public services before the pandemic. So he'd taken his pre-pandemic spending plans and cut, you know, despite the huge amount of, of, of pressures on public services. And it was, wasn't you could argue it wasn't really realistic, but you had to take, you know, it was the only thing that we could go on. So back in April, when we were doing sort of our projections of the Welsh government budget, 
over the next Senate term, it was quite a bleak picture, especially in 22, 23, when the COVID-19 funding, so the one-off funding for public services was coming to an end. We, so yeah, there wasn't a big increase at all in the, in the sort of core day-to-day budget for the Welsh Government. Um, and that would have led to, you know, really difficult choices for the Welsh Government. We knew that last month he'd increased the health and social care levy, brought in that. So we knew that spending would be increasing by around £600 million on top of those plans. What we weren't expecting was about, you know, another billion pounds next year in day-to-day spending and about quite significant amounts of funding in, in, for, the, for the previous two years. So spending now, if you exclude COVID-19 spending this year, um, spending core, the core Welsh government budget will be growing you know, substantially by around two billion pounds, which is you know quite a, an enormous increase, and will be stay flat really in real terms for the next two years. Just lastly, there on the, in terms of your know, overall spending um, will be falling next year because we've had the one-off sort of two billion pounds, almost three billion pounds of, of COVID nineteen funding for this year, so that's being taken away. But now we've got some of that sort of additional COVID-19 spending will have to come from the core Welsh Government budget from now on. Ed, I, I've got a question for you, but did you want to pick up on any of that? No, I mean, uh, well, the, obviously, I mean, from the headline numbers, there is a big increase, as, as you point out. And, and uh, the, you know, it's, it's churlish not to recognise that, there, you know, there, there's some significant increases to the budget. And those are things that are really going to be needed uh, because we know, particularly in the NHS, We've got this big backlog, uh, backlog of cases um, as a result of the delays during the coronavirus pandemic. We've got you know, a, a, a relatively fewer beds available. Um, uh, there's last week the Western Mail uh, noted the new data about beds availability. We've got a staffing crisis, so we, we, this this funding is going to be needed. But it it, it does allow these decisions to be made uh, given these increases uh, to the block grant. One one of the key one of the things in in the budget speech, which I, I quite liked, was uh, he kept referring back to the biggest increase since like two thousand and ten, and there's a theme there, and it is obviously you know we've had a decade of austerity. I don't know if you did the work or I've got a thought on where we would be with these budgets now if it if they were increasing over the last ten years with economic growth and beginning of austerity. Where where are we in that kind of vein, Ed? Well, actually, a point to get to on that, because I think actually get to has run the numbers in terms of, well, and, and also the, the fact that our population uh, is, is higher than it was in, in 2010. Uh, so, so, you know, it spreads. There's more people which to, to, to spread the budget around, if you like. But I don't know if Gitto had, uh, had the, the data on that one. Yeah, so, so day-to-day spending next year will be about 9 10% higher than it was in 2010, which is a big change from sort of, four years ago um, when you know, we were still about six or well, eight to six percent below um, in real terms compared to 2010. You know, on a per person basis, you know, the population has grown by four to five percent in that time. So you're looking at about five percent higher than, than in 2010. But there's two things. I think you mentioned the, the sort of the economic growth. If, it, if, the, if the budget had just stayed as a constant share of, of, of GDP over the last 10 years, I think, I think the Welsh government put it at about three billion pounds higher it would have been so that's one measure i guess of, of the impact of austerity on the budget i think as well as it's important to point out that you've got the nhs spending since in england it's, it's been increased 
in real terms throughout the, the sort of the, the the last ten years in Wales since 2013-14, since that sort of youth turn of protect of not protecting the NHS in Wales, and since then the NHS budget has grown by around a fifth almost in real terms. Obviously, that that's an increasing share of a smaller pie or, or a pie that wasn't increasing. So you, as a share of the, of the of spending, it's increased to almost half of day-to-day spending, and that's left everything else in the budget. So you've got about £5.7 billion this year of, of local government funding, of, of non-COVID uh, funding for local governments, and you've got everything else in the budget, which is about £3.1 billion. so your housing, transport, you know, all sorts of things, um, high, further and higher education, etc. That and local government is still about you know, 10% below where we were in 2010, um, which is you know, a significant cut. Yeah, over a time yeah, yeah. period, it's been squeezed. So on paper, you know, we're in a, we're in a good place. I think it's fair to say. Can we say then that this is the end of austerity in its current format? It's a it's a difficult one that because on the one hand we've got these this big increase in in the block grant, but the real problem with austerity is it strips out capacity in services, which then takes a huge amount of time to build back up. So when we had uh, the the reduction relative to English spending in the health uh, department uh, early in the, in the last decade, uh, and we've had continuous, uh, you know, that, that p- p- particular period of austerity, we, it means that right from the start, we've, we've had, we've been, it's been a, a very difficult to catch up, right? So in, particularly in the health service is a, is a really good example, because it takes probably a decade to, to get up to a level of capacity that you need. It goes right back to the number of medical school places that are available. Uh, that there's a that there's a real shortage compared with the uh, the numbers that are, are needed in terms of increased demand in the future. We you know there's there's far fewer places than we want. We have uh, a, a relatively smaller number of beds uh, than we would have had had the budget not been increasing in line with what was needed at the time. And of course we've got you know aging populations with long term illnesses, obesity, advances in genomics. We've got new technologies. All of these things that have put huge pressure on the health service, notwithstanding the coronavirus pandemic. That means that you know, the, the impact of austerity is a long-term one. So it, it reverses to cash while important, don't really erase that damage. I found it really interesting how the chancellor said that you, know, you made a big point about that we're bringing education spending in England, poor people spending in England on schools back up to 2010 levels. And that sort of, in three years' time, so that's sort of fifteen years without any growth in spending per pupil, and somehow that's a sort of an achievement of, of, of the government. You know, it tells you a lot about you know, what what's happened to spending over the last fifteen years, but also tells you something about sort of how this UK government is almost running against, or they're trying to run against the, the policies of George Osborne. So they are trying to position themselves against you know, the, the austerity policies of George Osborne. I think. As I mentioned, the sort of NHS spending versus everything else just now, you, as, as Ed said, you, NHS spending growth hasn't been sort of particularly high from a historic perspective. And outside of, of health spending, spending even you know, over the next three years, we, we're not going to get back to 2010 levels at all. Obviously, those services have an impact on, on health services as well. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of an end to austerity policies, but it's not it's certainly not a reversal of, of, of austerity. And just to add to that, I mean, and Peter talked about the kind of running against George Osborne's politics, which, of course, is, is, is true, but it's much broader than that, because now we've got an international consensus 
that austerity was the wrong way to go uh, after the the credit crunch and the, and the subsequent financial uh, from the subsequent recession. So we've got you know the international organisations uh, arguing that this kind of more deficit funded spending is a is a is a is a better way to go. We've got big increases in the in the federal spending in the U.S. We've got other parts of Europe increasing spending, and of course, what they're doing in in the U.K. government on this front as well. So we've got a different set of circumstances. I think recognizing on a global perspective what austerity caused, um, and uh, so yeah, it's it's a, the U.K. is 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 pushing at the kind of global tide on that one. Uh, so. We spend often comes tax. What kind of taxation changes are we going to see to pay for this increase in spending, Gitto? Yeah, so you've got the, the Chancellor's new fiscal rules that he set himself. So he says that he wants a current budget balance over a three-year period. Um, so that means that he doesn't borrow for, uh, for anything other than investment spending. So it means that taxes have to rise above current spending on, on day-to-day services, which has increased a lot. So if you look at the tax to GDP ratio, so it's a measure of sort of how much taxation compared to the sort of the level of, of the economic of, of the economy that the Chancellor has to raise in, in taxes, that's going up from 33% two years ago to 36%. It's been hovering around 33%. It doesn't sound a lot, but it's been hovering around 33% for, 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 for this century, at, at least. And then if you go further back in time, you know, going up to 36% of, of GDP raising in taxes is, you know, is the highest ever sustained level. You know, you'd have to go back to the 50s to see a similar um, tax to GDP ratio in the UK. So obviously they, he's increased since coming, uh, coming, coming, becoming Chancellor, he's increased corporation tax or reversed some of the cuts, planned cuts in corporation tax. And increase the, t- the headline rate of corporation tax. You've got uh, he's frozen income tax thresholds and brought in the health and social care levy. It's interesting we're looking at this week in, t- in terms of where this places the UK in an international context. So the UK is a low tax economy. So its its tax to GDP ratio is below the OECD average currently. And if if they manage to increase tax to GDP ratio up to thirty six percent, that brings the, the the ratio above the average for developed countries and, and it's broadly in line with the other major eco- uh, major economies the g7 economies but it's still significantly below scandinavia the average for most other european countries yeah so it is sort of almost a catch-up a partial catch-up to some of these countries that that have much higher tax to gdp, GDP ratios but you know that's the forecast but obviously that you heard towards the end of the, of the Chancellor's speech that that's not his goal. He wants to see taxes coming down before the end of the, the Parliament. So you know, I think there's yeah the reasons to doubt whether it, he'll actually follow through with this, uh, with the, with the yeah, proposed forecast increase in the tax to GDP ratio. Following that up, I've, I've kind of got two questions. Have you done any work with regards to what this means into, in, in real terms to people's sort of pay packets, these, these increases? And also, what sort of measures would the Chancellor have to use in order to be able to lower taxes by the end of the parliamentary term? So he's sort of relying, he's relying almost on, on, on the forecasts being better. I don't think there's any room for reining back spending. It's a question of if you if you want to come cut back spending, what would you cut that George Osborne didn't cut um, five years ago? He's sort of relying on. He's got some 
headroom, as they call it, against his, his fiscal target of a current budget balance. So he, either he breaks his, his fiscal targets, which I don't think would be the worst thing, or he, yeah, he's relying on a sort of uptick in, in GDP over the next few years, which I don't know how likely that is either. Yeah, and I think I think it's just very difficult to, given the pressures on particularly the NHS and social care, that I think that cutting taxes significantly would be would be quite difficult in this environment. The you know we already know that the vast majority for the first three years of this new health and social care levy will actually be going to the health service. Um, so we you know we've still unfunded a lot of the demand on social care. Uh, the, the social care plan that, that Boris Johnson announced was more to do with uh, limiting how much individuals would have to put into covering the cost of their own social care rather than actually funding those additional costs. So we've, there's so much unfunded liabilities, if you like, still out there that I think that, that, that cutting taxes, it, as Gitter said, would probably be reliant on a very significant uptick in the economy and the associated uh, benefit to the to the to the treasury's coffers, uh, and they could do uh, some some uh, circumstantial changes that look like that there's that there's uh, tax cuts, but in the grand scheme of the in the big picture, like the percentage of of, of the economy, uh, uh, the tax rates, um, you know, th- those things I think are going to be very difficult for them to cut. One of the ones which did surprise me, and I, I like your take on it, is was the cut in air passenger duty for short-haul domestic flights. Brilliant entry to COP26, I thought that was, promoting one of the worst carbon emitters, climate change aspects. You know, so that that was one. I don't know if you've got any take on that. But also, were there any other... Because one of the things with the budget is, and I'm someone who's worked on budget day and had to go through it line by line, was there anything else which might not have appeared in uh, in the news, which is... Uh, surprise you whether it be a tax cut or a tax hike on on air passenger duty i mean i think it was uh, just a real a, a, a real a really unnecessary thing uh, for for the government to have done this is this is uh, uh, in the context where fuel duty was frozen yet again we have uh, everybody who travels on a train particularly long distance knows how extortionate rail fares are in the UK. And instead of doing something uh, on that front, where of course we, we're bringing back um, uh, railways into some type of closer public ownership with this great British railways uh, plan that has been announced. We, there's a lot of franchises now back in the direct running of the Department for Transport uh, and of course Transport for Wales being, being government run. We've got, we've got so many opportunities now to use, to use public funds to actually support a climate friendly transport system. We know what we can do in that area. We can electrify the railway, which reduces our, our carbon emissions on these bi-mode uh, bi trains that, that turn off the power in Cardiff and run to Swansea um, on, on diesel pumping carbon into the atmosphere. We can reduce fares. Uh, we can improve the, the uh, uh, decarbonisation agenda quite not easily, but we know that transport is, is one of the biggest emitters in terms of, of the, the carbon footprint and carbon emissions. So for the government to not only freeze fuel duty, but to not encourage people to go back 
uh, to using uh, public transport after the, the, the coronavirus pandemic, and then to go the other way in cutting domestic, uh, domestic flight taxes when France is abolishing domestic flights where, to where the TGV network can, can take the strain of that. It just beggars belief. And it, it really, when, when, when the government is doing actually quite a lot on the climate front and quite an aggressive net zero plan and trying to persuade other countries around the world to join suit in having quite an aggressive uh, decarbonisation strategy for them to do this, it just absolutely beggars belief. And, uh, and, and it did take away from actually some of the good things, not only on the budget side, and we talked about the increases to the block grant, but in the overall, uh, overall uh, package that the government is putting forward at COP26. There's, uh, there's, of course, certain cases with the Scottish islands, for example, where you'd need to subsidise flights because they might be the only option. But that's not the case for an easy jet flight between London and Manchester or London and Glasgow, where a train can easily uh, take over. So it was just uh, one of those areas where you just uh, you know, really look at it and think that was unnecessary uh, own goal, if you like. Yeah, I, I just thought there might have been some, some really good lobbying going on somewhere along that line. Kito, did you want to comment on it? Yeah, I guess just to reiterate that the fact that I don't think he mentioned the climate at all during his, his speech and considering this sort of a defining issue at the moment is yeah, so it's quite shocking. In terms of, I think it's interesting, so, yeah, looking at the, the capital budget side um, of the Welsh government's budget, so the, the, the budget for sort of infrastructure um, spending and, and capital projects, that's actually going to fall over the next couple of years in real terms. So we've seen quite a big increase, a relatively big increase over the recent years, but it's going to be sustained at that level and it's not going to grow over time past the sort of two and a half billion mark, which at the time of you want the Welsh government now spending, so there's infrastructure spending to, to, to reach net zero that the Welsh government needs to be doing. It's not ideal that the, the, the budget, the data, the, the capital budget isn't growing. I think that might be where the squeeze is in terms of the tough decisions for the Welsh government would be. They'll have the certainty of, of the next three years and they'll know for once, they'll know the, the, what their capital budget or have reasonable yeah, certainty of what they're, how much they've got to spend. But sort of balancing the different demands on, on, its, on, on the capital budget would be difficult uh, over the next three years. Can I ask you quickly, Gitto? I think you've got to work in the environment with these financials to get the different terminology I think capital and revenue often get people. Can you give a quick summary on, you know, the differences on that, how it impacts these decisions? Yeah, sure. So, so it's not an arbitrary. Is it sort of an accounting? There's a difference between how you class different uh, two types of spending. So, so first of all, you've got revenue or resource spending. I often call it sort of day-to-day -day spending on public services. It's to paying grants or paying procurement. It's paying with the wages of, of people who work for the NHS or local governments, with contrast with capital spending, which creates assets or creates either physical or, or other financial assets. So, for instance, you're building a road or a, or a building or, or sort of infrastructure that usually creates and has sort of a long-term value. I think that's the best way of, of describing the, the difference between the two. And that I think sometimes, and you know, this... So distinction between the two does matter for governments 
fiscal rules. So in, in the Chancellor's fiscal rules, he wants, as I said, he wants the sort of a current budget balance. So no spend, no borrowing for investment spending, and that investment spending then capped at three percent of, of GDP. So that sort of gives him the, the targets for both that types of spending. And I think, and I think sometimes it's it's quite an arbitrary distinction because you know, spend day to day spending on schools can you know is arguably good for the longer term prospects of the economy. So you know, and that's classed as, as day to day spending, even though that it does create human capital, if you like to put it crudely, um, which, yeah, sometimes the distinction is, isn't really that helpful. We're going to move on a little bit to the shared prosperity and levelling up funds. The Chancellor reaffirmed his commitment in the spending review to Wales receiving not a penny less than it would have done under EU schemes. What's the reality of the situation, Ed? Well, so far, that's that's not the reality in terms of the, the connection between not a penny less um, and, and the amount of, of funding um, through the Leveling Up Fund and the Community Renewal Fund. I mean, the eve of spending was about 375 million per year under the, uh, the old arrangements um, and was particularly targeted, of course, in West Wales and the Valleys, um, which was the area of, of, of greatest need. Whereas at the moment, we've got Wales receiving 46 million from the Community Renewal Fund. Uh, in the past uh, week, and that is the pilot scheme for the Shared Prosperity Fund, which is the long-trailed scheme that would be eventually expected to at least match um, EU funding. Um, so at the moment, we have this pilot scheme, which uh, is kind of uh, providing funds for, 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 for individual projects that have been chosen uh, at the, by the Westminster government. It, it is not at the moment... Uh, the replacement for for the for the the, the amount of, of funds that were re- being received uh, by by Wales. There's a lot of you know uh, questions about whether or not they're including the running down of the last couple of years of the structural funds. But you know this at the moment we were in the pilot territory on that one. On the shared prosperity fund, I think over the next three years again, I think they use the term ramped up. They'll ramp up spending to 1.5 billion pounds, which I think overall in the UK matches the receipts that the UK got on average from the EU to, from the infrastructure funds. But that's in nominal terms. So I guess in three years' time, that 1.5 billion pounds will be worth less than EU infrastructure funds to begin with. And I guess then. You know, it, it becomes a question of how much the Welsh share of that, but what, yeah, what the Welsh share of that is. You know, you'd have to have around a quarter of it to be in the right ballpark in terms of what we got from the EU. Uh, in nominal terms, that is not in real terms. You'd have to have much more, but it's roughly our share of the two hundred million pound pilot. Um, so maybe eventually, if we maintain that share, it'll be. Yeah, not a penny less, maybe. Um, but yeah, it's quite uncertain there. Yeah, I think Ed mentioned that the 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 fact that EU funds are still being distributed this year. I take I took a look yesterday morning at the sort of the the committed funds. So that the EU funding was worked in six year funding rounds. Um, so Wales was allocated a, a, a pot of money essentially for, to spend from 2014 to 2020 under the EU's infrastructure uh, spending pro- pro- uh, programs or funds. And I think there is 
uh, quite a lot of that, about eight hundred million pounds of that might be coming over the next few years if it's distributed um, after you know, that period has come to an end. But some of, some of it is sort of reimbursed for, for the projects after they've already spent money. And I think I might be wrong in that 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 those payments will still be coming until two thousand twenty three when they will be sort of have to shut down because. You know, even though that we might not be getting a penny less, if we manage to get the, you know a, bit, a big share of the share prosperity fund, it is controlled, or it's looked like it, it's looking like it'll be controlled by the UK government. It'll be on a sort of a competitive bids basis from local authorities in Wales bidding for this funding. My chief concern probably is concern is is just in terms of governance and a lot of the EU funding funded Wales wide skills programs for example which doesn't fit neatly with something that you where you have local authorities bid, bidding against each other for, for, for individual funding so you might might have some 22 different programs running it simultaneously doing similar things so there's a lot of room for waste i think and i guess going back to the, so the leveling up fund which is a separate pot which is not eu replacement funding and Wales is getting slightly higher share than its population share from that. Um, so the 121 million pounds that we heard in the budget, you know, that's pretty sort of randomly distributed projects coming in. Sort of the Tredegar Queen Hall, is it that got funding? Is it, you know, and then you've got the, the community ownership fund that's funding a a pub, a community pub in North Wales. Um, so there's all these all these things, project different projects being funded from different parts, and you've got civil servants central government civil servants deciding on things that I don't think should it even be decided on a, on, a, on a Wales level. It should be decided by local authorities themselves if a community pub in North Wales gets gets funding. So I think, you, and sort of the, the from the levelling up fund, you've got a, a, a 1.5 kilometre road in, in from the Ronda to Cardiff being funded. Which, so you know, you've now got three tiers of, of, of governments spending money in similar areas. So in terms of governance, it's a bit of a mess and it's, yeah, it's no real overall plan, that, I guess. It's just these ad hoc investments being made. Um, yeah, so that's my rant over. <laughs> the budget does see quite a significant increase, like you said, in, in UK government spending in devolved areas. What does this new approach tell us, Ed? Well, it tells us they, they are intending to spend to spend money directly over the heads of the Welsh government and devolved policy areas. I mean, the, the we've seen uh, there's a there's an increase of forty percent in the budget for the office of the Secretary of State for Wales um, in the budget. It's a relatively small amount of money, I think six million pounds, but still signifies the kind of direction of travel on this. You know, the the the, the idea that they would uh, strengthen and sustain the union in Wales' role with it and increase the visibility of the UK government's commitment to Wales being the priorities for that spending. So it's very clear what the intentions are here. I think what is what is very concerning from a governance and transparency perspective is that when, when, when uh, uh, politicians or interest groups or civil society ask for the methodologies about why certain areas are selected or not selected, for priority funding, why particular projects are awarded funding and not. The, the answer comes there none too often. I think we're slipping back in terms of, of transparency from an, a, a, a situation that was not great in terms of the distribution of the EU funds uh, for, uh, at the Wales level, but we're going in reverse uh, in terms of transparency and governance arrangements. And by doing this, the government of the UK government opens itself uh, to, to accusations from political opponents that is, it is using these funds 
for political purposes. It's just very difficult to, to if, if you don't have methodologies very clearly laid out on this, uh, it, it opens themselves to criticisms about transparency and governance issues. I've been quite lucky to work on Budget Day in central government, and it is a really interesting day. It is really exciting. There's pressure, there's stress. But if you enjoy that side of things in the politics, it it can be quite good. You know, I I think I know the answer to this, but where do you think the Welsh government, Scottish government, Northern Ireland is in the, the process of budget setting at a UK level? Do you think there's any involvement at all, or do you think there's a deliberate arm's length approach and... You know, the lack of clarity from the Treasury until the very last minute is is a deliberate or is it just something which has developed? Well, it's difficult to know not being on the inside, right, because you can only respond to what we see uh, as as. You know, just as, as lay observers of, of this process, we don't know what ministerial discussions are like between the Treasury and the Welsh Government. I mean, I do think in the cases, some of the more egregious areas are the, the, the overnight decisions over tax rate changes that have a direct implication on the, on the policy of the Welsh Government. So where, where uh, the, the, the stamp duty holiday uh, was, was introduced in, in, in if, if England, of course, is the default tax in Wales and Scotland, Overnight, uh, the Welsh ministers have to decide on what to do about about the land transaction tax uh, and the land and buildings transaction tax in Scotland. You know, without any notice that these that these big changes are coming. So I think it, it, that there is much more that can be done on on providing notice. Uh, the, the, of course, you know, having the, the spending room with the multi year certainty this time around is is very useful. Uh, for budget setters at the Welsh level, uh, but I think that a lot more can be done. I think uh, committees all over the UK and in the devolved countries will have been pushing this matter for years that there needs to be more collaboration and communication and coordination of the kind of the, given the, the intergovernmental uh, connections over the public finances in the in the in the UK. Uh, but given the political pressures, um, I don't think we've seen seen that get anywhere near uh, uh, as, as far as we'd like. Gitto, we saw yesterday the Bank of England keeping interest rates at 0.1%, but there was a, a caveat there. There was a warning that they would have to increase soon to deal with the looming threat of up to 5% of, of inflation. What sort of impact do you expect that to have on the cost of living? And uh, what would you expect the various governments of the UK, UK to do to tackle that threat? Yeah, so in terms of the cost of living, crisis you know as i mentioned it was a good good budget for departmental spending but it wasn't much in terms of of tackling the cost of living crisis um you had you know, an important change in, in in universal credit the the change in the in the taper rate and on the how much universal credit recipients can work or how much of additional income that they can keep as they work more hours but you know that's not you know, it, that's not nearly enough to sort of compensate the fact that, that there was a cut, the, the, 20, the, 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 20, the removal of the £20 uplift to universal credit that we saw. So people, people, especially on lower incomes, will be squeezed by that decision. And, you know, these are households that spend a lot on energy where the, the price pressures are probably highest. Um, as, as a share of their income, they spend a lot on these areas that see, they're seeing sort of big price increases. So yeah, in terms of of what the UK government did, I don't think it did too much on on that, and I think the Chancellor could have gone much much further. 
In terms of the Bank of England sort of announcement of, of I think it would have been a mistake to, to raise increased interest rates. I don't think the economy is, is particularly strong at the moment. So I, I don't think even though it's sort of where unemployment might not be as high as we'd have expected or forecast before going back to March on the on the March forecast, the OBR forecast that unemployment would go up to sort of six point five percent, I think, but it's now five point two percent. Um, you know, in Wales that's about seventeen thousand fewer unemployed people compared to what they were expecting back in March. So the, the outlook is better, but the, the the GDP is still below where we were before the pandemic, um, slightly closer to where we were before the pandemic than than, than was forecast, but we're still below. So I think you know, now is not the time to sort of for, for, for tightening. And I think again I, I guess on um on that point, I think I mentioned the sort of fiscal rules earlier that the UK government have these fiscal rules that want to cut current budget balance over three years. There's a sort of a get out clause of that when there's a significant negative shock. And that's sensible because you know if there's an economic shock like we've had in the last two years, um it's gonna blow you know targets, fiscal targets out the water, it's gonna increase spending and lower revenues. But that sort of get out clause from the fiscal rules aren't sort of defined precisely. And I think we, we probably still are in a negative shock. And, and I don't think we should be having fiscal these fiscal targets now at the moment because we're still in this sort of dip, if you like. We're still below where the economy was. We're still far below where the economy would have been in the absence of the pandemic. So now is the time almost for fiscal stimulus. Um, which we're not getting, we're getting sort of a, a removal of, of this fiscal stimulus probably a bit too early. So, you know, an in, interest rate rise on top of that would, be, would have been, yeah, bad news, I think. Part of the problem, of course, if you're the Bank of England or Monetary Policy Committee, you're seeing, as Gitter says, all of these difficult pressures on the public finance. But you're also seeing, on the other hand, in very significant inflation uh, forecast on the uh, uh, on the horizon. So a lot, the OBR at the time of the budget, they're forecasting that uh, uh, the consumer price inflation is set to speak at four point four percent in the second quarter of next year, and this is way above their historical target for which they'd be wanting to to set interest rate policy around. We've got energy price inflation uh, that is creating this big squeeze on household incomes. So in the traditional way of approaching these kind of inflationary environment would be to increase interest rates. But as Gitta says, there's a huge uh, prevailing currents against uh, those types of rises. So they're in a real quandary, uh, you know, these kind of uh, questions about things like stagflation and, and all of those old economics terms anybody did a level economics or back in high school would, would be familiar with these 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 difficult challenges for policymakers and the bank of england's a real quandary on this one because the traditional uh, policy tools to respond uh, to to you know rapidly growing inflation there's there's pretty big reasons not to use them in this current environment you know, we talked about energy prices and, and uh, uh, universal credit. With the latest uh, Resolution Foundation report, says that in this parliament, they're expecting the weakest annual growth in disposable household income since records began. So just 0.1% or possibly zero. You know, adding NHS waiting lists, uh, the energy uh, energy price inflation, and the uh, the, the the hit particularly on lowest income households of energy cost increases, that you know, raising interest rates with the associate pressure on mortgage rates and credit card debt is not something the bank will want to do easily. 
What did you think of um, what Andrew Bailey said at the start of this week, kind of inferring an interest rate rise and how the markets took that? How do you think that's left his credibility? I, I, I have you know, nothing but sympathy for his position for the reasons I outlined. This is a, a really difficult decision that this policy committee is having to make. The use or the lack of use of these tools, is, it, it comes with really, really, really big consequences. Uh, and th- th- they'll be under pressure from the government, from uh, from the markets to try and get inflation down. But they're under political pressure to not uh, compound the, this household squeeze. Uh, this it's a really difficult uh, situation, and I think the markets will be, you know, as they do responding, kind of jittery to to any kind of indication that there'll be the fiscal hardship along the way. But it's a it's a, always a tough job at the best of times being bank governor, but this is a particularly tough one, I think. So uh, before we go, let's have a little bit holistic question. What what is your sort of long term outlook for the Welsh economy, Gitter? Big question. Um, Do you mean long term, as in the next eight hundred years? It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, little, a little bit less. A little bit less. Like the, the Welsh budget's coming up. We mentioned it's a it's a Christmas gift, you know. Take it from that and into the rest of this assembly term. Assembly, sorry, Senate term. Drink. Yeah. So in terms of, in terms of the yeah the longer term prospects, I guess big story of the last sort of fifteen years in, in terms of economic growth is just how slow sluggish economic growth has been in terms of the sort of GDP per person. That's set to be only like ten percent higher in real terms in two thousand four compared to where it was in two thousand eight. Had so trends pre the financial crisis trends had continued over the over that period, GDP per capita would be a quarter higher than it is or will be in 2024. And I mentioned earlier that there's a sort of tax to GDP ratio. That's an awful amount, a lot of, of tax of lost tax revenues. And personally, I don't think that there's a, a longer term growth strategy or a sort of a plan for economic growth. And that's what's sort of, sort of missing in the UK government's plans. And in terms of the likelihood of, of, of the Wales specifically sort of seeing higher higher growth in the rest of the UK or sort of catching up, I think it's it's not particularly likely, I don't think. I don't think that the UK government is, is serious about levelling up productivity across different parts of the UK. I was looking earlier, or earlier this week on I was reading a, a book by a Cardiff Business School economist called Leon Guberman about the history of, of the economy and government in Wales since the Depression. He talks about the Special Areas Act um, of 1934, which was the first attempt at regional policy, I think, in the world um, because of, of the impact of, of, of the Depression on, on particularly South Wales. I did that in my undergraduate degree. <laughs> yeah, so... That, and and yeah, I think Aaron Bevan called it a sort of an empty and idle you know attempt at, at doing nothing. I think it was, it was his words, but you know it was widely seen as ineffective. And spending for that per year was about two million pounds, which compared to the size of the economy at the time was about 0.05 percent of GDP. And I was looking at comparing it to the Shared Prosperity Fund once it's the funding will be ramped up, as they say, by 2024. Um, that 1.5 billion pounds will be the same share or 0.05% of the economy. So in 2024, so you know, these investments, so these ad hoc investments that I mentioned earlier are not going to sort of transform the, 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 the relative position of the Welsh economy. 
particularly because they're not sort of they're not even going further than what we had or the end of the EU for the last 20 years either. I think from a from a budgetary perspective, uh, it's it's a lot better than it was six six months ago in terms of you were the finance minister of Wales and looking at what you're going to budget um, on health service and so on. We're coming through uh, this uh, particular crisis where there's been an enormous, uh, uh, historically enormous amount of money transferred into the Welsh budget to deal with the consequences of COVID. And we, as we ramp out of that, the picture is not as bad as it could have been in terms of what we would ramp back down to in terms of our budget. Now, of course, the, the problem is, is we've got enormous pressures, particularly on the health and social care side, uh, where, where we've got exhausted medics who've worked for 18 months through this pandemic. Uh, we've got catching up with an aging population with new technologies, uh, with new medications, with new health problems that cost the NHS a lot of money. So that we can never really get ahead of those, those problems. So we'll, of course, we'll, we'll, we'll be here in future years saying that there's pressures, uh, but the pressures are not as bad as they could have been six months ago, I think, from a, from a, as a result of these, um, these, uh, these budgetary uh, announcements. I think on the economy, I think that is the, that is the big, that's a you know, $60,000 question or perhaps a lot larger amount of money than that. I mean, this is what policymakers globally are struggling with um, in terms of how to respond to such a, 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 an unprecedented uh, economic dip. And the, the good thing that happens in most countries around, well, most developed countries that can afford to do these schemes is very significant deficit spending to get us through the pandemic. Things like the furlough scheme and, and grants to businesses to keep them afloat. I mean, this is what has left us in a stronger position at the end of the, well, as, not the end of the pandemic, but the end of the first stage, if you like, of the pandemic where we are now. Uh, it, it's left us in a position where employment is better than we thought it might be uh, because we've used government spending to get us through the crisis. So I think in the long run, we're still way too early uh, uh, to uh, evaluate the long-term impact of this because the, 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 the government has, has again, uh, rode to the rescue uh, of, of the market, but in a way that they absolutely should have done an international effort to keep us in the least worst position that we could be financially uh, at, at this point uh, after the start of the pandemic. Uh, well, I just want to say thank you so much to both of you for coming on to talk to us today. Uh, if people want to hear more from you, where can they find you on Twitter? Ed? Uh, uh, so, uh, at uh, Wheels Governance is our organisation's Twitter. I'm also at Ed Gareth Poole. Gitto? Uh, at Gitto underscore Ivan. Wonderful. Dilkan Baudian. Thank you very much for coming on. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please do not forget to find us on Medium at Here I Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Here I Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Here I Blog. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.